So hello and welcome. And this is the Hustle Over Everything podcast. It is always a special day when we get behind the mic and to deliver all the good words we have for you and give you value to build your business. Uh, Today we have Andrea Henry. Andrea Henry is a Cambridge educated lawyer with more than a decade of experience working with businesses of all sizes and at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. She started Henry Business Law to help ambitious entrepreneurs to feel safe and secure in their businesses and enjoy the exhilaration of taking a risk with the knowledge they have the right legal protections in place. We have her here today to learn more about the ins and outs of business law and find the gems that she can give you to really take your business to the next level. So Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yes. So, you know, to start off the show, you know, tell us, uh, you know, at what point in your life did you really make the decision to get into law? Oh, my goodness. So growing up, I wanted to be an anthropologist Mm -hmm. from the time I remember um, until I realized that being an anthropologist, first of all, I didn't know anyone who was an anthropologist. And then it would require going into, I thought at the time that it would require going into the jungle for long periods of time. I'm not a rough in it, like bugs type of girl. And so I realized it wasn't really um, the career for me. And then I always like to read and I like to argue and I like to write. Mm -hmm. And those three things kind of pointed me in the direction of law. Yeah. And the only type of law I've ever been interested in really was business law. So my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned a bakery back in Barbados. And um, when I was in law school, I did internships in investment banking with what was then UBS Warburg. I was really just fascinated with business, right? How do people come up with ideas? How do businesses get funded? How do they grow? How do they move into new markets? It's always been something that's fascinating to me as I've always worked in business law in some way or form. So when I started, I started as a commercial litigator which is when businesses are suing each other and quickly realized that that was not, it's interesting Mm -hmm. and it's very challenging. Um, But you see, or I saw people get into trouble and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands on things that honestly had they had the right advice at the beginning could have been avoided. And so it became really important to me to be able to educate people when they're starting up their businesses so that they avoid, avoid those costly mistakes. Okay. Uh, okay. Most definitely. Um, this just take a step back as well. Um, are you originally from Barbados? From what I've seen? I, well, I was born here. I was born in Edmonton, actually. Oh, get out of here! My Bayesian parents decided to move from Barbados to Edmonton for some strange reason. Alberta. Um, but I spent most of my childhood in Barbados. They moved back when I was about five. Okay. All right. So then, when did you come back to Canada? Um, when I was twenty-three. Okay, so you had like a full life from Barbados and came back. Well, did you have to go through a culture shock when you came came back? Not, not really, because we'd spent summers here. My mom was a teacher, so she had summers off, and we would always come up to see family. So okay, it wasn't that much of a culture shock. Um, and when I left Barbados, I didn't come here directly. I went to so I left Barbados at eighteen. I did university in England and France, and then wow. came here after. So by that time, I had traveled a little bit, and it was okay. Amazing. Awesome. So what was like the point that actually got you, I, I think I own accident already, but something to clarify that, that I actually said, all right, because of this reason, I want to get into law. Yeah, that it was, I like to read, I like to write. Uh-huh. Um, like there's no big origin story. 
You just decided to do it. I just decided to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I did a, um, you know, like in high school, they do like a career test in. So I did an uh, aptitude test Mm -hmm. and it was either counselor, journalist, or um, law. Mm -hmm. Journalist, I was like, they're going to send me into war zones. Again, not a rough in it type of girl. So that was out. Um, Counselor, I think would have been interesting. I just didn't have anyone around me who was a counselor. So I had no one to ask. Yeah. Um, but I did know lawyers and I did know a lawyer who was at the school the year before me, who was going to the same university that I wanted to go to. So I had some mentors in that area and mm-hmm. that was kind of the decision. It's funny you say that because even back in high school, I used, um, those career, you know, we did careers class and there are all these yeah. different careers. And at one point, like I used to like see a lot of people who are chiropractors. There's a lot of chiropractors in the city I grew up in. So that's like the only reference point I had. My brother wanted to be a pilot. And then wow. once I really realized, uh, you know, I fell into entrepreneurship just, just by door knocking one board spring break. I was like, hey, uh, let me help you clear the snow off your driveway. And then just that transaction of getting $20 instead of going to work yes. uh, at uh, Tim Hortons <laughs> or something. I was like, wow. I just made two hours worth of money in a short period of time. Exactly. And that's when I realized I'm like this, this feeling, I want to make this into something special. Yeah. And that's what led me down to, to this path. The entrepreneurship. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's entrepreneurship origin stories are always fascinating. And so mm. sometimes it's that, it's that rush of, oh my goodness, I just created my own money kind of out of thin air for yeah. a lot more than what someone was willing to pay me. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes people have really good ideas and they want to bring it to the market. And sometimes it's just, for me, the leap to entrepreneurship was I had a really bad boss. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I came home one day and said to my husband, we don't have enough money for bail if I strangle this woman. And so I need to quit. You need to leave. That was it. And I, yeah. I went in the next day and quit. And I was like, I'll mm. figure it out. What makes a bad boss for you? Yeah, that's an interesting take. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I I like consistency in instructions. Mm. And so, you know, I prefer not to be micromanaged, but that's okay if there's some people who really want to have that control. But to me, a good boss is someone who is going to give you very clear guidance and is going to be consistent about it. So like in my practice, we have, I invested, one of the first major investments was in creating systems. So there's a set way of doing everything, right? If you do an incorporation, there's these 10 steps to follow. And that way it's outside of my brain, it's actually written down. You have a boss who on Monday tells you to do something one way, and on Friday it's a completely different way, and then also looks at you like you're crazy because, oh, I never would have said that to do it that way. I find that really frustrating. Got you, got you. Yeah. I mean, how how did you really take that leap to really leave your job and start your own practice? What was that transition like from, I'm going to leave my job, tell your husband, and then the next day, you know, you're giving you two weeks. Uh, Following those days after, how did you go on to set up your own enterprise? Or were you thinking about it even before leaving your job? I mean, I had always, as I said, my dad was an entrepreneur. I Mm -hmm. knew that entrepreneurship was in my future at some point. I just didn't realize it was going to be that close. Um, Initially, I kind of eased into it. So I went into consulting first, which is working for yourself, but not really the same as having, you know, a separate business. And so I did consulting for a while and that helped me to ease into it. The idea of not having a regular paycheck, being able to manage that, you know, going out and getting your own clients. Um, and then I have three kids. So 
with when my last daughter was little, I was having regular coffees with a friend. We went to high school together. We've known each other since we were 11 and he was a lawyer as well. And so we would meet up at Starbucks to complain, right? <laughs> Sounds horrible. But we would Mr. meet Vance. up at Starbucks to vent and be like, oh, you know, this boss was like this and this person was like this. And if we had our own firm, we would do this differently and we would do mm-hmm. that differently and we would really help people, et cetera, et cetera. And about maybe six months into it, I was like, look, we really, this is a waste of time. There's no point complaining. Let's, let's try let's something. Do something yeah. Let's do mm-hmm. something, yeah. Um, and so we started Box Law in 2016, and um, that went until 2018. He's gone in-house with a client. He's much happier in-house than mm-hmm. as, a, as a business person. And then I started mm-hmm. Henry Business Law from that. Um, the lesson from that, for anyone who's listening who's in a partnership, one of the reasons why we just had dinner just before the, <laughs> the lockdown, one of the reasons why we're still friends and still, you know, happy and had a amicable separations because we had a really really good partnership agreement and so when it became clear that we were no longer on the same page there wasn't any disagreement because everything was there in black and white which is the advantage of contracts right like I I saw a client have on her um, wall the other day it's it's kind it's to be clear is to be kind and so quite often people are kind of anxious especially newer entrepreneurs will think, I don't want to hand, I don't want to give my client a contract or I don't want to ask my supplier or my manufacturer for a contract because they're going to feel I don't trust them or, but really it's in everyone's interest to have a really clear set of guidelines for what the relationship is going to look like. If things work out wonderfully, you never need it. Mm -hmm. But if things don't work out, now you have, it's like, you know, with partnership, it's like a prenup for business. So you have a really clear explanation okay things haven't worked out this is how we're going to deal with it and it stops the misunderstanding it stops the miscommunications and you're more likely to be able to continue the relationship after i'm curious what were some of the um parts of the contract that made it amicable you know you never rarely hear hey me and my partner split and it was fine i mean right. fine, friends yeah. after so like, yeah. yeah what were some of those things that you had uh, mapped out in the contract that made it so amicable Great question. So we were really detailed about what we brought into the partnership, what we needed to contribute to the partnership on the way through, and how that was going to be valued in the event of a breakdown. Mm-hmm. So we kept really good mm-hmm. records about how much work either, you know, with partners, what normally happens is one person will perceive the other person to be doing less or more work. Mm-hmm. or that that work is more valuable that's yeah, like the, yeah, the yeah. main reason why partnerships break down mm-hmm. so if you have a clear way of valuing what that work is and you are regularly meeting and you have clear criteria set out as to how to value that it becomes easier when you're deciding to leave right mm-hmm. um, we also had clear things that if the partnership dissolved for example, the name wouldn't be available to either person. Like the name was just going to go away. We made that decision before we even started. So then it wasn't a dispute as to well, who gets to keep the name. the name. Neither person. Actually. That's it. <laughs> We're just doing our own thing. Okay. Yeah. So we try to think ahead of time, where are some issues that we might fight and let's deal with them now. It's like when you're having a prenup for marriage, the time to do it is when you're in love, right? Because you're mm-hmm. more likely to be fair to the other person than when things have gone off the rails and now no one wants to be there. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. 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 So 
I've, from looking around and just digging into you, you know, I've discovered a few things. I was really not where I was like, dang, this is interesting. I can't wait to ask you this. So like, mm-hmm. one thing you focus on is empowering women. And we're going to get to that. And um, one thing else mentioned is that you scaled your business to six figures in one year. Yeah. Right? Walk us through that. How did you do that? The first timer, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I networked like crazy. Mm. Like, honestly, I had very, very little budget for marketing. I still have never spent money on an ad. Wow. Ever. 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 Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, But I did a lot of networking. So Mm -hmm. it may be different from business to business, but my business is built on trust. Right. And I think in general, people do business. We've all heard this, right. With people that they like, know, and trust. And so for me, it was, I need to find a lot of people to like, know, and trust me. And I just networked. I just went out and and initially um, because my kids were young, they're still young, but younger than I didn't have a lot of time on the evenings and weekends. And so I went to events that were put on by women in business because they were during the day because other women had children and they used to be home in the weekends. Yeah. And then I realized, I was like, hang on. After I went maybe for two, three months, I was like, there are never any other lawyers here. This is bizarre. Like all these women have businesses and some of them had really thriving businesses. Mm-hmm. And then when I asked them, have you worked with a lawyer before? A lot of times the answer was, well, mm-hmm. we think it's too expensive or it's really kind of intimidating or they don't, they just didn't feel comfortable mm-hmm. looking for that advice because the traditional look of a lawyer does not look like me, right? It's a, mm-hmm old white guy on Bay Street in a really stuffy office that's going to charge you a thousand dollars an hour just for asking a question. So it was really intimidating. And so really I just was myself, right? Like I was just approachable. I answered questions without, you know, I wouldn't give hour long consultations for free, but if someone had a quick question, I'd be happy to answer. Um, I did a lot of speaking to try to get my view of law and and the importance of being proactive out there. And then one other thing I did, and I got this from a friend who is a a general contractor, I sent out cards. So that was essentially my marketing budget. If I met someone in person, Mm. and and whenever I went to a networking event, it was never to meet like I'm, you know, there's some people in networking events and they just go around and they hand out cards. Yeah, dishing them out like flyers. Never seen the point of that. Yeah, (laughs) no. My aim was to try to connect to one, maybe two people, right? Mm. And if I met someone at an event or at a you know, speaking event or a speaking engagement, I would send a follow-up card. Now, everyone gets emails. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your inbox is full. But when last did you get a card in the mail? Mm-hmm. So people would open them. How did you get their address? Oh, their business card. And if I didn't have their business card, I would just ask them. I'm like, hey, I'd like to send you something. People love free stuff, right? Like, I'd oh, like to send you like something. Okay, like, creative, yeah. creative. Sometimes I'd send, like, a card with, like, a pack of brownies or something like that, right? Creative, yeah. Um, so people will happily hand over their their addresses if, if they think they're going to get something. And then right. you can, and that was just what I use. There are other people who use other things. There are people who are really good on social. I've seen entrepreneurs who are just brilliant on social media. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, so everyone has different things. I was not a social media girl. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> I got to get creative. Yeah, you knew what worked for you pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, how did how did you measure that? Were you just like, all right, I'm just going to keep going, keep going? Or was it like, a, all right, if the person was uh, a high value lead, I'm going to send them more stuff that way? Like, tell me more. Let's dig deep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I sent an initial card to everyone that I met. Mm. 
for interesting okay the first i don't know maybe two years of the practice mm. pretty much everyone i met anyone mm. who did a consultation with me got a card mm. if someone came on as a client then they would get a gift card right i'd say it was such a pleasure to work with you i really enjoyed working with people like you you know here's a starbucks card for being so great if you know of anyone else who's like you and is trying to scale their business i'd appreciate the referral and that was it as time has gone on, I have some really key referral partners who tend to send a large portion of my work. Those people, of course, get fetid and champagne and all the rest of it. But yeah, <laughs> initially it was literally everyone that crossed my radar got a okay. card. Gosh, you, gosh, you. Interesting. Interesting. And that, would you say, is like the, the methods that brought you to six figures quickly in a year? Yeah. It was a networking part of it. And like That's those it. networks, well, like. It. Did it like give you referrals as well to really get you to that number? Yeah. So that's the only way clients were coming in. It was referrals, right? Like, as I, as I said, I've never spent any money on ads and I really mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to compete with like the bigger firms who have the, the budget the ad budgets, for, uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for blanket the ads or SEO and being, you know, yeah. you would, for a lawyer, I would never suggest like going into ads because like, a, like social media ads, at least. That's what everyone's going into nowadays. Be it, do Facebook ads for a lawyer of mm-hmm. the SEL straight, and then that's going to be pricey. Exactly. Because a lead can pay so much, right? So you're going to have to pay a lot for a lead. Exactly. So I get Alex, it. I get it. What's up? Alex, would you do uh, Google ads for lawyers? Because I Google think I've seen all day. Google yeah, ads for, sure. for lawyers. Never. Facebook. So what, what I would do is, huh, all right, let me take a little water. Because Andrea, yeah. Alex, Alex, <laughs> Alex, is, uh, <laughs> Alex is a digital media guy. You know, he does ah, a lot of Facebook yeah. ads. So if anything, you'd like, this is the perfect guy to ask for any of your yeah. advertising yeah. needs. 100%. I do paid audience acquisition. Um, so what I would do, I would definitely stick to Google ads, Google ads, Google ads. Um, I'd have probably have a video to retarget people who search for the lawyers in Toronto. Mm. Or, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. both on Google and on, and on YouTube, when before I watch a video, I get a Andrea Henry Law. Yeah. At, you know, I'll probably do it like that. So then they're constantly being reminded from that versus just um, the SEO click because it's going to be more expensive. And you don't get don't get charged unless someone hits them, um, watches 30, 30 seconds or more on YouTube. Well, that's so, good. Yeah. I didn't know that. One of the things with... Um, that I think helped move the practice as well, and this is tied into the to marketing, yeah. is that I really niched very early. Mm. So a lot of, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of lawyers, when they come out, kind of do everything, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you're trying to find your feet and you're just trying basically whatever comes in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why my business partner and I parted ways was because I wanted to do only business law and I wanted to focus my marketing on women entrepreneurs and people mm-hmm. of color. And it's a little scary when you niche early on because it means saying no to money, which mm-hmm. is hard mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're mm-hmm. when that's what's you know putting food on, on the table and, and, and keeping the roof over your head. But it was really important to me to do that. And I think that that made all the difference because it's easier to become known for one thing when people associate you with that one thing, as opposed to doing 15 different things and no one can think about whether to refer you or not. So I became really, really clear in everyone that I was meeting, all of my clients, my referral partners, this is the person that I'm looking for. This is the problem that I'm trying to solve. Please don't send me anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. That's actually great because you actually built your 
domain and everybody knows that's your territory, right? And you build that trust over time. So if you have another woman of color and they're obviously uh, friends with other women of color and they also have the same problem, especially in business, it's easy to expedite that process and building your clientele super fast. I think that's a great strategy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel like for these smaller communities, we only go to people we trust because, you know, just because of our prior history, it's hard to bring in other people who might exactly. not get your issues, might not get your problems. So I think that's a great strategy with what you're trying to do. Um, getting deeper into it, we really wanted to get into contracts because I think this is, especially focusing around COVID-19 and everything yes. that's happening around now. So um, right now, like just to generalize it and go from the top, you know, what are some common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make when starting a business and they're dealing with contracts uh, what are some things to look for? Uh, what are some things they should keep in mind and everything that goes into setting up a contract with, it could be a vendor, supplier, mm-hmm. uh, employee, and et cetera. Okay. So that's a lot to cover. And thanks for asking about COVID. The mm-hmm. first few weeks of um, after the lockdown was just a lot of panic. People who either had not invested in contracts or knew that the contracts weren't great or were trying to get out of contracts or people were trying to get out of contracts with them. The key thing, if you look at a contract as the story of the relationship, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're entering into a contract with someone, all of that legalese aside is the story of the relationship. So it helps if you think about it like a story, right? So if you're reading a book or you're watching a movie, you have the characters. Those are the parties to the contract. You have the plot. This is, you know, what's going to happen. And that's the obligations on both sides, how you can expect the other party or what you can expect of them, what they can expect of you, right? I don't know. I'm probably dating myself a little bit. But when I was growing up, I read Choose Your Own Adventure books. I don't know if you remember those. I used to read some of those. Okay. All right. So so you could choose your own ending and the ending would change. Uh The difference between a contract and a normal story is that contracts always have alternative endings. And it's Mm. the, if this doesn't work out. Right. So if you consider the first part of the contract is the parties, it's setting the tone. This is the plot. This is how I expect the relationship to go. You are going to pay me a thousand dollars and I'm going to deliver, you know, five yards of material, whatever. There's also what if you don't provide the material? What if the material you provide isn't up to standard? Or what if I don't pay you? Or what if I take this material and say that it was me who created it? All of the what ifs that can come up in, in relationships are then essentially dealt with by the alternative ending part of the contract, which tends to be in the latter third of the contract. So when you're reading a contract or if you're getting read, so often you're given one, but if you're preparing one, you want to make sure that you understand. And I'll, I have a, a resource, a free resource called the anatomy of a contract. And I'll share the information with you after so that your listeners can access it. But it goes through this. And there's a checklist of, the things that you need to understand. So you need to know what it is that you are responsible for. What is the other person responsible for? What happens if you can't meet your obligations? What happens if they can't? Who has intellectual property rights in the situation if it's, you know, if it's applicable? Are you giving up any of your rights? So if, for example, if you sign a contract that has a non-competition clause, are you giving up your right to work in your field for a certain period of time? Are you giving up your right to work with a certain set of people for a period of time. You need to be cognizant of all of those things before you sign on the dotted line. With entrepreneurs, the thing that I see the most 
is just not wanting a contract at all. People feel, especially when they haven't been in business for a while, they just feel really anxious about it. Mm. And I will say, in my experience, and I might get told off for this, I find more with women than with men. Guys tend to be, the clients that I have that are guys are like, yeah, this needs to be in place. I understand we need to have a contract. Women, and maybe it's a socialization thing, are concerned about coming across as being too aggressive or not nice enough. But really, there's nothing better for the person on the other side than for yeah. you to have invested in the time to protect both of you. Mm-hmm. Right? Most definitely. Uh, I can speak to that. I've started off when I was doing my first marketing going door to door. I didn't have any contracts. And that was the biggest mistake. Yeah. Because um, at first, one thing a contract does is it, it makes everything clear, makes everybody on the same page of what's happening. That's right. It. Whereas if you're just saying, hey, I'm doing the marketing for you, there's going to be other things that's additional that's going to come up. It's like, oh, no, no, that's part of the deal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's the problem. And yeah, you're right. A lot lot of times people don't want to worry them or feel like uh, a contract could be binding. I find that a lot of small businesses, especially um, presenting a contract, make them feel like, oh, am I sending my life away? Am I going to be like handcuffed to this person for like Mm -hmm. six, seven, eight months? You know what I'm saying? Without being able to um, get out of it or I'm going to have to call a lawyer. And there's this whole like wall up of like, once the contract comes up, we're officially binded. Like we're getting, we're getting married. Yes. So um, I don't want to like, The thing is you have to take your business seriously, right? Yeah, like, yeah. is it a hobby or is it a business? I have this conversation mm-hmm. with <laughs> people who do consultations. Like there are some people who are calling their hobby a business and it's really mm-hmm. a hobby. If this is your business, if this is the thing that's going to bring you the life that you want and to afford you what you want to do, Mm -hmm. then you have to take it seriously. And one of the things of taking it seriously is, yeah, you need to be clear about what it is you're providing. And the example you gave, exactly. If you say, I'm going to do marketing for you. Mm -hmm. Now you may be thinking, okay, marketing includes, I'm going to, you know, do some posts for them. I'm going to give them some advice on SEO, Mm -hmm. but they're going to implement it. In their head, they're like, I don't have to do anything else. Alex is taking care of all of my marketing for $200 a month because people are unreasonable as well, right? So, <laughs> Ooh, they want it all for the least. All for Tell the least. Me about it. Oh my goodness. And then it's, and it's not that anyone is trying to take advantage of the others, it's genuinely their misunderstandings. And so, quite often, people will think about a contract in terms of standing up in court if you were ever sued, and that's important. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, a contract is more likely to stop you from getting to court in the first place. Most definitely. Right? The, the dis- misunderstandings come where there's vagueness and where things aren't clear. The Most more definitely. detailed a contract you have and the clearer your contract is, the less likely you're going to have disagreements because it's just all there. So I have a question now. Um, what if you start working with a client without a contract? Yeah. And now it's time to create a contract. Um, what are some tips that people could use, but all right, even though there was one before, I'm trying to get into it now. Um, what are some things that here too, to, you know, bring into the conversation with a new contract with a client that's even working with already? Yeah. And that's a great question. And when, when I'm working with clients, it's one of the services I provide, I'll actually provide like an email that they can send off to clients, but essentially you want to position it that in a way that's beneficial to the client, right? Mm. So We've been working without a contract. You, you, you don't want to say that you anticipate any problems, but perhaps, you know, I've seen other people in the industry who've had issues or whose clients haven't been clear as to what 
you know, the relationship is going to look like. Mm-hmm. I really value you as a client and I want to make sure that we don't have any disagreements. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm setting out a clear contract. Please feel free to review it. Let me know if you have any questions. Certainly have a lawyer look over it if you'd like. But this is intended to be a clear description of, you know, what we can expect from each other. Very valuable. Very valuable. Dropping jewels. I think, (laughs) I also think like as well, like for, you know, people like Alex and I, especially when we're starting out our businesses, uh, you know, we're in services, we're offering these things is uh, we feel as if when we're starting out, we have a warm market to really uh, attract our business. So this could be our close friends, uh, people we know. And I think there's also a fear of insulting them by putting a contract in front of them. Uh, So you leave it as this arbitrary number. Okay, I'll do this for that. And you have it a handshake deal. And then after it just blows up in your face. Uh, What do you tell people who have that fear of approaching like it could be your mom's friend yeah uh, to really put it on paper and it's not a disrespect that I don't feel like you're going to pay up when it's time to pay up or follow up on that again I really value our relationship I couldn't live with myself if Mm. something happened in this business to affect Mm. our relationship and because of that I think it's really clear that you can see exactly what it is that I'm providing I've seen this happen with other people where you know, it's been friends and family and there's been misunderstandings. I value our relationship way too much for that to happen. Okay. So when it comes to COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of my clients... Um, You're not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that, that easy. Can you imagine if it was yeah. that easy? Like, oh, what, COVID, what? You don't believe in that? <laughs> government lies, man. You're going to believe the government, the Canadian government? Yeah. Um... But no, um, actually, he's going through um, more of like a battle with his um, um, like real estate, his his landlord, sorry, mm-hmm. and because um, his shop is shut down. Right? Yeah. So, what options does a entrepreneur um, have when it comes to that? Um, what what can they try to negotiate or um, try and set forth, check in their contract? Yeah. What what they yeah. got? So there's one clause in the contract that may help you if you have this clause. It's called a force majeure clause. A what? A force Force majeure. What's that? French word. So Mm. it basically is a clause. They also like they call it an act of God clause. (laughs) You're getting a (laughs) Is it like the movie Force Majeure? Yeah. Oh, it's a movie. It's not a well. There's a movie with that name, but yeah, the it's also called an act of God clause. It's things that are so out of the expectation when you start the contract that Mm -hmm. you know it basically means that you cannot fulfill your obligations and not have any further liability. So Mm -hmm. normally, force majeure clauses will say, you know, in the case that there's a flood, or a fire, or like war, pandemics, quarantines, Mm -hmm. those types Mm -hmm. of things that no one would have been contemplating when they signed the contract. And these things make it impossible for you to um, fulfill your obligations. You can be relieved from liability. Got you. Very few leases have that clause in them. And the ones that I've seen that have the clause only allow the landlord to get an out. I have yet to see a lease where the force majeure works for both the landlord and the um, tenant. Mm -hmm. So 
if you do have, if you're one of the lucky people that have that lease, and again, it'll be towards the end of the contract and as a force majeure or act of God will be the, the headline. So you can go take a look in, in your leases. Okay. If you have that, there's a good argument that COVID-19 is a force majeure, right? Like no one would have been thinking about it when they signed the contract, as long as you signed the contract sometime last year and not like, you know, beginning of March. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the government has said that businesses are non-essential as they've defined them need to shut down you are it's impossible for you to do this mm-hmm. and so yes for people who have that clause whether it's a um, lease also for people who are running events that's a really important clause to look at in fact the first call i got was from a client who does weddings mm-hmm. she's like oh my god everyone's talking about force majeure do we have it like, yeah section 17 don't worry you're covered but if you're running events and you're worried now that you can't run the event and you've, you know, you're, you pay the thousand dollars of deposit and another 10,000 is due, you know, just before the event and you can't hold it anymore and you have that clause, you don't have to pay anything else. Right? If you don't have that, this is the time to negotiate. All the courts are closed except for not for really, really urgent matters, which means no one can sue you right now. Wow. Landlord, however, for commercial tenants, mm-hmm. can still come and change the locks and can still come and take your stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's not like residential. Yeah. For residential, they have to, you know, you have to go through the whole eviction process and the landlord and tenant board isn't taken anymore. So residential people are fine until they lift whatever this is. Mm-hmm. For commercial tenants, they can't put you in court for the money that you owe, but they can go and change the locks and they can take your stuff to satisfy the outstanding amount. Mm-hmm. So this is a time to really negotiate. And so what I've some of my clients I've been working through throughout this period, it kind of depends on the landlord, but the approach that has been most successful has been, I'm really committed to staying here after. I really want to be here. I've paid my rent up to this point. I want to continue being a tenant. But for this period, I can't open. There is no revenue coming in. Yeah. Can we negotiate either a deferral or can you reduce the rent for a period of time? Can we reduce our share of the expenses and then pick it back up when this is all when this is over? Most landlords have been, at least where we've been involved in the negotiation, a lot of landlords have agreed to deferral. Fewer have agreed to rent reduction. There are some, some people have said we'll, for example, one client, they took no rent in uh, March and they're taking half rent in April and May. This is a time to really, you know, the landlords know that people have no money coming in. And if they put you out, all they're going to have is an empty space because no one else is looking to. No one's moving. Exactly. (laughs) No No one's one's looking for no real estate right now, especially commercial. Right. So, and I think to be honest, and this is not legal, so don't take this as advice, but. I think the fact that so many businesses have successfully had their employees working remotely is going to cause some changes in commercial real estate when this is all over, because mm. those days of having huge offices with, you know, t- your tons of employees and paying, you know, hundreds of thousands a year, is that really necessary? Maybe mm. not. Maybe people can work from home, right? So I think landlords understand the uncertainty if you've been a good tenant up to that point, if you've paid your rent on time and you've got a decent relationship with your landlord and you can commit to staying after, 
I think most salon knowledge will work with you at this point. At least that's the, the feedback that we've seen. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, uh, go ahead, Owen. Yeah, I was going to ask. Uh, in terms of like the employees who are working for that business, uh, people are getting laid off and uh, people are without jobs. Uh, from a uh, employee contract, do you foresee um, a clause inserted in contracts, meaning like if there's a pandemic or there's another um, this type of situation coming in the future, do you see businesses changing the way they write up contracts for employees and how they let them go and what they're entitled to when they leave the hmm. business where they let them go? That's a really good question. One that I don't have a, a quick answer to because mm -hmm. employment lawyers have been disagreeing <laughs> over mm -hmm. the impact of COVID. So there is a set of employment lawyers who've been like, it's a, you know, it's a situation that no one would have expected. We don't have the money to keep you on. You know, you get your notice and you go and there's nothing else that needs to be done. And there's another set of employment lawyers that are saying, no, people are still entitled to severance, even in this, you know, unusual situation. Really, the courts are going to have to work it out. But it's true. If someone had to terminate a lot of employees and then get sued from it, really the determination, the difference in how they deal with contracts is going to be dependent on what the court says. So if I've laid off 10 people mm -hmm. because of COVID and I get sued successfully, for sure, the next time I do a contract, I'm going to make sure it has that. The issue with employment contracts is it's one of the few areas. So normally when people are you know, when we're drafting contracts and a client will go, well, can I put this in? Like you put whatever you like in. So you're a contract. I mean, the question is whether the other person will sign. Employment contracts are different because you have to abide by the Employment Standards Act. So you can only deviate to the extent that it's not covered by the legislation. And the legislation does have minimum periods of termination and it does have minimum amounts for um, severance if you're a big company or if you're laying off a lot of people at the same time. So even if you put in that clause, if it's not consistent with the legislation, you're not going to be able to enforce it anyway. Would an employee be um, liable to sue? Is there certain terms that would make a, an employee liable to sue because of COVID? Like how, what would that scenario yeah. look like? So if you, um, so we talk about severance. So most people will have termination and termination is generally speaking a, a week. Um, for year of service, I think it's up to nine weeks. But if you are in a company that has $2.5 million in payroll, or they've laid off 50 people in the previous six months, then you're entitled to severance. So that's a situation where if you've been, if you've worked for a company for seven years and it's a bigger company, um, say for example, with Air Canada was laying off people yeah. and they laid them off to bring them back, they said, but if they had terminated people, According to the employment standards that regardless of COVID or not, they would have had to pay severance to those people who were there for more than five years. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think. So let's move on to corporations. Okay. Um, so you said that, <laughs> so you said that um, you and your partner was a partnership or was a corporation? We were. We were not a corporation. We were a partnership. Interesting. So what made you go with partnership over corporation? Yeah. So the reason why we chose that was because there are certain types of partnerships that are only available for licensed professionals. So we could mm -hmm. have a limited liability partnership, which functions in a lot of ways like a corporation. Um, 
you have the limited liability and you're not responsible for the actions of the other partner like you would be in a general partnership. So general partnerships I tend to advise against because once you're in a general partnership, you are completely responsible for the acts of the other person with respect to the business, which means even if you have an agreement in place between the two of you and the agreement says you can't spend more than a thousand dollars without, you know, both people saying, okay, Mm -hmm. but one of you decides to go and lease a Ferrari both of you are bound by that, right? <laughs> yes. And a lot of times people get, especially in our community, mm-hmm. people get into real estate investments without realizing that what they're actually doing is getting into partnerships. So a partnership as defined by the case law and CRA is anytime more than one person pools money and shares either profits or loss. That's it. Regardless That's of true. if you have an agreement, if you've registered it anywhere, so all the people that you know who were doing flipping, right? Mm-hmm. Were pulling their money to buy something, putting the money in to renovate it, and then sharing the profits. In the eyes of the law, that's a partnership. Interesting. So now, does that make them um, like both, like, like with the sort of proprietorship, you can come after that person's personal belongings? Yes, same thing with a general partnership. So general partnership is like a sole proprietorship with more than one person. Yikes. Corporations. Yes. <laughs> the other so reason messy. is, um, with with lawyers and you'll see doctors and stuff is that we can have professional corporations and I have one now, but our professional corporations have limited liability, but only to a certain extent. So I can't have limited liability against my clients. That's unlimited, even though it's a corporation. So anyway, but for the vast majority of people, <laughs> a corporation is going to provide you with a lot of advantages, right? So the basic difference is sole proprietorship or general partnership, you are the business. There's no separation in law between the business and you, which mm-hmm. means all the money is yours, all the expenses are yours, all the liabilities are yours. And as I said, in general partnership, if your partner does something foolish, it can, it can affect your house, right? Especially if your partner doesn't have any resources, mm-hmm. they're coming after the person that has the assets. Mm-hmm. Corporation is a separate legal person. It's, I always find it fascinating. It is literally a legal fiction. We have just decided as a society that if we say the right words and we file the right documents and pay the right fees, this new person arrives. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And a corporation has all the same possibilities as a natural person, as you and I. So a corporation Mm -hmm. can own property. It's a a separate entity, right? Can Mm -hmm. do everything that a natural person can do. So it can own property, it can own assets, it can run a business, it can you know, get liabilities, have a mortgage, create debts, all of those things a corporation can do. The advantage is if there are any liabilities in the corporation, with some exceptions, which I'll get to, but with, with few exceptions, you personally are not going to be liable for any of the debts or the liabilities of the corporation. That's a big deal, especially if you have a lot of assets and or if you have a relatively high risk business, mm-hmm. right? The exceptions are if you provide a personal guarantee. So if you go to the bank for a loan for your corporation, bank does not care how great your corporation is, bank wants personal guarantee, right? Um, And if you are a director of the corporation and you have not paid CRA the money that was due to them and the company and the corporation no longer has it, CRA is coming after you as a director personally, which is why it's really important people get asked to sit on boards, right? Both mm-hmm. for um, 
for for profit, but also not for profit. You have to be really careful if anyone asks you to sit on a board, because once you become a director, you are liable or you are responsible for making sure that that entity abides by all of the tax requirements. So if they haven't filed, if they were supposed to do something and they didn't do it, you as a director are personally liable. And the only way you can get away from that is to show, look, I showed up to the meetings, I asked, they provide, they provided me with statements. I had no reason to believe the statements weren't, you know, weren't, uh, weren't true. Mm-hmm. But I'm working with a client right now who had a business partner. They were incorporated. The business partner was the one who was responsible for the finances. And they ran this business for two years. She never paid a single solitary cent in income tax or HST or any of the employee remittances. She took all the money. Yikes. And CRA does not care. They came knocking. (laughs) Yeah. CRA doesn't care. The other person is the director. They can't find the one who left with the money. I think she's left the country. Mm -hmm. They're coming after the other director who's here for like uh, over a hundred grand. So yeah. Even though it's a corporation. <laughs> is it, uh, even is it, the corporation. Is there any way okay. that person can protect themselves from get um, all that so mess again, that you left? My answer to a lot of these things is going to be, you have to take your business seriously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a hobby. Yeah. And so if you are a director of your business, I understand that for a lot of people, you know, one person deals with the finances, one person maybe deals with the marketing, or one is the operations person, the other is the marketing. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But the things that need to go to CRA, you have to make sure individually that you are paying attention to that and things are being filed. Even if your business partner is responsible for it internally, mm-hmm. externally, you're responsible for it. Right? The only way, there's no legal way you could have an agreement with that person if they've left the country, how are you suing them? So the practical way to protect yourself is to have regular meetings, I'd say at least quarterly, where both of you go through the books. And if you don't know how to read the books, find an accountant or a bookkeeper who can explain it with you. But you have to be able to satisfy yourself that the corporation is making all the payments that it's supposed to make. Amazing. Okay. Thank you for that. There's a lot of jewels. So, um... <laughs> Sorry, when it comes to way sh- off topic. <laughs> no, you answered it perfectly. You answered yeah. it perfectly. Um, so one thing we're really curious about is like shares, right? When it comes to a corporation, um, how shares work when it comes to getting an investment and yes. bringing on an investor. Um, could you break down like how shares work, what different types of shares there are? Because I know there's different types, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I would love that. Sure. So yeah, corporations work. And again, one of the advantages of incorporating versus being a sole proprietor is that you can sell shares in the corporation in a way that you can't do with a sole proprietorship, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can't sell one part of your kidney because you are the business. So Mm -hmm. the only way that you can raise money in a sole proprietorship is through debt. With a corporation, you can sell a part, a piece of the corporation, the form of shares. Mm -hmm. The most common type of shares are common shares, common and voting shares, which is what most people think about. And those are the shares that entitle you to the underlying assets of the corporation. So in a really simple example, the corporation owns a building that's worth a million dollars. There are a hundred shares. Each share is entitled to one hundredth of that million, right? It's entitled to the underlying assets. 
Voting shares are the shares that allow you to vote at meetings of the shareholders. And really the shareholders control the corporation because the shareholders elect the directors, they can remove them if they don't like them. They, you know, they control which direction the corporation is going to move. So those are the kind of standard, most common shares. And if you're just holding it on your own, or maybe you and a business partner, you're likely to have those shares. But there are lots of different shares that you can have. You can also have preferred shares. Preferred shares don't entitle you to the underlying assets, but you get paid out before the common shareholders in the event that the corporation, you know, gets dissolved or gets bought out. What you'll often see when people are investing, especially in the venture capital space, is something called convertible preferred shares. So what these, right. So convertible means they can be changed. And so normally convertible preferred shares are, I invest in your business. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to come to the shareholder meetings, but I think you're going to, you know, sell for a hundred million in two years. Mm -hmm. If I have convertible preferred shares, as soon as there's a change in ownership, so as soon as you sell, my shares convert into common shares and I get a share of whatever it is your business sells for. And if it, right. And if on the other hand, it doesn't sell and it goes belly up Mm -hmm. because I have preferred shares, I get paid out first. Okay. So what often happens is it's it's attractive to investors, especially venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. It can be difficult for, um, it's a double-edged sword sometimes for the business owner, right? Because as a founder, you want to keep as much control over your business as possible. So you want to keep the vote common voting shares. You don't want to give those up unless you really have to. And for someone to come in with a large infusion and say, hey, I don't need to vote. I just, you know, I believe that you're going to be able to sell and I'll get my money when you sell. Great. So you take those convertible preferred shares and then you take another round of convertible preferred shares and you now have all the common voting shares. You have all the control but you have two or three layers of shares who all have to get paid out before you. So if for whatever reason you don't sell for what you think you're going to sell for, and instead the assets of the corporation have to be divided, all those people are getting paid out before you. Wow. Hey. Wow. Um, one thing is uh, from the employee side, when you're coming into a new business, mm-hmm. uh, there's something with stock options. And yes. a lot of employees don't really understand how stock options work and how they can invest them. So can you break down uh, what stock options are, um, how much stock options are given to you, and how do you vest those over your period of employment with the company? Right. So the last two will depend a lot on, on what the company has given you, but stock mm-hmm. options in general are, um, it's an option. It's, a, it's, it's the ability to convert these things, the options, into shares at some later date. So it may depend on the number of years in service. So how long you've been with the corporation is common. Mm -hmm. It could be that the corporation hits a certain milestone, right? That you have these options that are going to turn into shares once we raise, you know, 2 million in financing or 5 million in financing. And then in terms of vesting, usually corporations will say, you're not going to be entitled to all of them at once. So maybe you get entitled to convert a certain number into shares in your first year of employment or when we hit a certain milestone. 
And then when you get to year two or we hit another milestone, another set become available to you. That's what the vesting schedule is. And that will depend entirely on the corporation and what the milestones are for you getting access to those options. Okay. Um, Just, <laughs> a lot of uh, businesses also, when they're incorporating their business, they go through incorporating in Delaware. Uh, it's a famous way to incorporate a business. Uh, there's a lot of benefits behind it. And a lot of people are not aware of the benefits behind it. Uh, they're always confused, should I uh, incorporate in Delaware or just do an Ontario corporation here in Canada or a federal uh, corporation here in Canada? Uh, what is What are the advantages of uh, setting up a corporation in Delaware? So I don't practice US law. And mm -hmm. so <laughs> I'm gonna avoid commenting on that. Um, if you are a Canadian business owner and you're running your business from Canada and that's mm -hmm. the residence of your business, then generally speaking, it is going to be to your benefit, especially if you are a small business from a tax perspective to register a corporation here. If you are making, and this is going to be the case for most people in the first few years of their business, if you are making under 500000 a year, then the small business tax rate is 13.5% which is quite low, right? Mm -hmm. um, you'll also have the benefit of being able to access loans and grants and programs that are only available to Canadian corporations. If you are a US resident or you spend some of the time here and some of the time there and you're trying to offset US tax issues, then there may be advantages, but I would really, I would speak to a US attorney about that. Okay, got it, got it. Because a lot of the tech companies whenever they're investing with a angel or a VC, even here in Canada, they always yeah. switch it to, hey, let's switch it to a Delaware corporation because I think- Well, it's, it's because a lot of their investors are US, right? Okay. And so is the tax treatment for their investors mm -hmm. is going to be better in a Delaware company if they're a US investor. Mm. Okay, interesting. So one thing that came to light um, in my experiences was that there's different business laws per province in Canada. Is that true? And like, what are some of the laws that have stuck, stuck out to you? Like, oh, yes. this law is super different from one in Ontario. Employment sure? laws. Employment laws differ from province to province. So really? anything to do with employment, you really want to make sure that you're dealing with, um, with, with a lawyer who's called in that province. Uh -huh. But for a lot of things, it's the same. So there's no overarching, so sorry, let me not say that. Arbitration acts are different. They're not significantly different, but each province has an arbitration act. So mm -hmm. if you have alternative dispute resolution, for example, if you want to have a clause in your contract that says we're not going to go to court, but we're going to go to um, arbitration instead, then that arbitration should be governed by the individual rules of the province, but they're largely the same. The biggest thing is employment. A lot of things are, are similar, though, or because they're at the federal level. So trademark, which we haven't even gotten to, but <laughs> trademark yeah, no, no. is... Um, it's federal, right? If you do a federal incorporation, it's federal. For the vast majority of your contracts, they aren't going to be differences province to province because really your contract is whatever you can get the other person to agree to. But I'd say employment is one where you have to be really careful. There are significant differences. Taxes too will differ from province to province. Mm -hmm. Let's jump into trademarks. That wasn't a part of yeah, the agenda, <laughs> but I want to definitely dive into it because I think that's going to be something that's definitely going to be uh, 
relevant to us and mm-hmm. it's a lot of entrepreneurs when they're just jumping in they're creating their logos they're creating their um smash Slo- slogans everything slogans, like you know um everything that represents them as a brand right so yeah. how can they best protect themselves from when it comes to trademark infringement copyrights um and the Canada. Yeah. So the first step is to make sure that you are not infringing anyone else's copyright when you start. How can they check that? So you can go to the intellectual, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office's website. It's you Google CIPO, C-I-P-O, mm-hmm. um, and they have a trademark search. You literally go in and put whatever name you're thinking of trademarking, and it will come up with a result to tell you if anyone else has trademarked that name. And it will also tell you the category. Because as we'll discuss in a little bit, trademarks are not blanket, right? They are according to the particular type of good or service. So mm-hmm. as an example, Dove, right, is a mm-hmm. bar of soap, mm-hmm. but it's also a candy bar, and it's also a dry cleaning. Because no reasonable person would confuse the three of those things, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't think that it's just that you're dealing with the same thing. Mm-hmm. So when you apply for trademark protection, you apply in different in the category that you're offering it in. And when you do the search, you'll be able to see, I don't know, I'm just picking up something, Altoids, right? Maybe have been registered for mints, but maybe they haven't registered for carts, right? So you'll see if someone else has registered it, but also have they registered it in the category that you want. If it's not in the category that you want, you're still free. You also want to take, so that's the trademark level. But you also want to make sure that what the name that you're choosing isn't confusing. Right. So you do want to do a, a domain search. You want to do a search on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And I guess for the young kids, the TikTok and TikTok. all the <laughs> my kids have been teaching about that. Yeah. Um, all of the major platforms, you want to make sure that no one else is already using it or using anything mm-hmm. similar to it. Mm-hmm. Because even if the trademark is available, if other people have already cornered the space on it, it can make it difficult for you to get a trademark. If it's already out there in the public and everyone else is using it already, it's difficult for you to be able to say, well, you know, it's mm-hmm. mine alone. So that's the, the search part of it. And you want to make sure that no one else is using it so that no one is going to come and sue you for trademark infringement down the line. Mm-hmm. Second thing then is to protect it. So once you've done the search and no one else is using it in my category, I'm good to go. The way how you protect it First off, before you ever apply for trademark registration, if you choose to do so, there are practical, cheap or free things that you can do. Mm -hmm. One, you can start using TM after the name or the logo or the slogan as soon as you start using it. Because that TM is saying, I am asserting my right to ownership of this thing. Because there's a common law right to trademark. So even if you never apply for registration, the law says... If you are using this thing in association with your business, you have a right to it. The reason why people apply for trademark registration is because even though the law says you own it, you have to prove. If someone comes to you and says, nope, actually it's mine. I've been using it out in BC for the last three years. You now are in a court battle, right? And litigation is expensive at the best of times. IP litigation is the most expensive litigation. There's only a few types of lawyers do IP litigation. It's very complicated and it's very expensive. So the reason why people register is to avoid the risk that someone will challenge their right to it. But if you're now starting out and you don't have a ton of of money available, just put in TM puts people on notice that you're asserting your right. Is it expensive? 
Yeah. Just a quickie, China. Is it expensive to get a trademark registered? Mm-hmm. So it depends on if you're doing it by yourself or if you're doing it through a lawyer. So okay. it's $330 is the application fee for up to one class. And every additional class. So we were talking about the different categories. So say, for example, you are trademarking Hustle Over Everything, right? Mm-hmm. And podcasts will be in a particular set. But if you also want to trade markets used in promotional products, that's another class. Each additional class is $100. So depending on how many classes you want to register, it can get up there. But the basic fee is $330. Mm-hmm. If you're working with a lawyer, most lawyers will charge around $1,500 and up um, for the whole process. What does that cover for the $1,500? Yeah. It, so when you go to the, to the intellectual property website and you're going through you will see that there are pre-approved categories and there are tens of thousands of pre-approved categories that you can just click and add to your application. The problem is those categories are somewhat old and they haven't really kept pace with what a lot of people are doing now. And so it's often difficult to find a pre-approved category that matches what it is that you're doing. In which case you have to create your own category. Reason what, what lawyers charge for is knowing how to draft a new category in a way that makes enough sense to the intellectual property office that it will be approved. When, when you're, let's say you have a logo and mm-hmm. you change it. So let's say you trademarked it. You're like, okay, you know what? Screw this. Our business is evolving. Uh, we want to make this logo, our logo. Yeah. Um, do you have to register that same logo again over and over? Let's say you have a different types of slogans, different logos. You have a word mark, you have a, different symbol that represents this um do you have to register every single one of them or do they all fall under the same class of okay you know what this is hustle over everything we are registering this and it applies for this 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 and that because it's the same thing but just a different style to it the unfortunate answer is no Mm -hmm. we consider every single different iteration of your brand a separate trademark Mm -hmm. so your logo your slogan the name of the company, everything is a separate application. Mm. And if you change it, and this is why I tell people when you're starting out, a lot of people, and, and trademarking is great, right? It protects you. And I think it's important. It is also important to be sure that this is what you want to use yeah. because the process of, of obtaining a certification of trademark is anywhere upwards of 18 months. It's going to be even longer now with COVID, right? Um, you cannot change the application while it's in process. You would have to wait until it gets to the end and then apply to change it. And it takes just as long to amend as it does to process in the first place. So if you're now starting out, unless you are a hundred percent sure that this is what you want to use, I would say, wait a little bit, get some market feedback. When you're sure that that's the logo or the slogan or whatever else you're going to use, then trademark it. How about if you're going international? Let's say you we're in Canada, we want to do business in America or yes. Europe, and we have this logo or saying, do we, and let's say it's registered, the name of the business is registered in Europe. Yeah. How do we go do business there? Do we have to operate under a different name or... So you can first search. So SIPO is the Canadian, WIPO, World Intellectual Property Organization, is the one for all the countries that are signatories to the Madrid, Madrid Treaty, which we joined last year. Mm-hmm. And they will also 
well. You can do a search on their website, just as you can do for Canada's, and they will tell you if there are registered trademarks in any other place that you want to do business in. Okay. Um, but yes, if someone else already has a registered trademark in the country that you want to do business in, you're kind Sucks. of out of luck, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that happened to Nike. It happens to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it happens to a lot of people. Um, the other thing is when you're starting, if you want to, since Canada joined um, the Madrid Treaty, you can now apply in Canada, but extend your registration to all the other countries in the Madrid Treaty, including the EU and America. Interesting. It is, however, very expensive. So um, a client did one a few months ago to the States, and I think it was three classes, and it was like 3000 US, just the filing fee. So, you know, with anything in business, it's going to be a, a balancing act in terms of where you want to, to spend. But if you know that you are going to be going international, I think if you're a Canadian and you're mostly Canadian brand, and maybe you might get a few people overseas, it's probably not worth it. But if part of your business model is that you are going into the U.S. market or you're going into the EU market, that is part of your growth, then you probably do want to invest and protect it in those markets right from the beginning. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is, these are things that we also are starting to think about, like, you know, setting, I know right now it's just Alex and I building this business, but we do have uh, great ambitions. We really want to expand worldwide. So we really want to learn how to protect ourselves and, yeah. Uh, getting the best advice possible to really do that. So, uh, yeah. And and the thing with trademark in the U.S. is that so before last year we couldn't even do that. Canada was one of the few, I think, only developed country that was not a signatory, which mm -hmm. meant that you had to apply in Canada and you had to go separately and apply in the states and separately and apply in the EU. Now you can do it with one central registration. The mm -hmm. catch is this: the U.S. has changed things which means that if everything goes swimmingly and there are no issues in your application, you can go through the, um, the WIPO application. But if there are any issues, only U.S. attorneys can represent you um, with their trademark and patent office, which means for a lot of people, they end up just hiring a U.S. attorney from the beginning because kind of the anticipation that there are probably going to be one or two hiccups, especially if it's something where other people are using the name already if it's not mm -hmm. registered. And so some people will go with the U.S. attorney from the beginning just so they have someone there in the event that there's an issue. Wow, that's really good. Hmm. So let's just dip into intellectual property a bit. Okay. You know, um, especially with, with me and a lot of creatives, we create a lot of content for clients, but we don't know how to protect it for that content that we're creating. Mm -hmm. you know, um, how does it usually work? So if I'm a photographer, for instance, and I'm shooting um, content for a client, um, who has the rights to those photos usually? Is it the photographer? Is it the client? Or is it what's uh, discussed in the contract? I'd love to get some like insight there. What's in the contract? Really, as the creator, mm -hmm. you have the intellectual property rights until you pass it over to, um, to your client. The issue is a lot of clients don't know that. And so mm -hmm. it is in the best interest of the creative mm -hmm. to put that in the contract, right? And you may have, there are photographers who will say, you know, I assert, I'm going to retain the intellectual property rights. We'll give you a, a license to use it in perpetuity. If you want to own the intellectual property rights, then 
there's a much higher cost. So instead of you paying me, you know, $500 for the photo shoot, it's now 5,000 because you're buying the intellectual property rights as opposed to just buying a license to the photographs. But it is important that you make that clear to clients because a lot of people don't know that and they figure it's my photos, I've paid for it, or it's my logo, I've paid for it, um, without understanding that really what they've paid for is the license as opposed to the actual underlying rights. Mm, very true, that's a gem. That's a big opportunity to upsell exactly. um, as a creative. Exactly. Most definitely. Really and depending on what your client wants to do with it, right? So mm. if I come to a photographer because I want family photos, mm. I just want them to send to family members. I'm not interested in putting this on a book or anything. So it's unlikely that I'll pay the upsell. I'm like, fine, the license is fine. If, however, I am doing this for my business and I'm going to use that photo to be on my book cover or you know, I'm going to commercial weight, then I probably do yeah. want the rights, right? Yeah, and if I... Yeah. If you explain properly what having those intellectual property rights gives you the, the ability to do, um, then you'll have those people be willing to buy. Okay. Okay. Nice. Uh, one thing I also wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, a lot of young people are starting businesses online. It could be a service, an agency, and a lot of them don't have the cost to have a lawyer or pay for a lawyer. Uh, you've been a lawyer for a majority of your life now. Um, you know, what are some tips you can give to new business owners who are coming into a business, they're cash strapped, but they do want that legal counsel to help them set up paperwork. What are some yeah. tools or services that do exist that they might not know about that they can take advantage of to really uh, protect them as they are building their business or service? Right. Um, so most lawyers will provide some type of cons complimentary consultation, right? Mm -hmm. So take mm -hmm. advantage of those. The city of Toronto and most of the other municipalities have regular events, well, maybe not now, but certainly before COVID and after COVID, we'll have regular events um, about the legalities of starting a business. So go to as many free um, or low-cost seminars as possible. And then I'm going to shamelessly plug my own resource, <laughs> which is um, the securestartup.ca, which are template bundles. So for many years, I saw clients go in you know, online instead of doing, you know, control V, they would copy and paste and it being a, a, a disaster because those contracts weren't really customized to them. But also understand that not everyone has the resources to invest in a customized contract. And so these templates are kind of my brain in a box. It's the process that I go through when I'm looking to create customized contracts. So it's the templates along with customization tips and a general guide and they're industry specific. So right now we have for beauty entrepreneurs and for coaches and consultants, the online entrepreneur one is coming at the end of the month and we plan to create for new industries every month to two months. How much is one of those costs? Those start at, those are not start at, they're 997. And you receive, I think okay. it's six um, six contract templates. It includes, for example, independent contractor, employment agreement, terms and conditions. And the online one, it'll be an affiliate agreement, um, mm -hmm. social media influencer agreement. So the key things in each industry, the, key, the really big difference is the guide. So it's not just put your name in, put the name of your business and something pops out. It really is the questions and tips and, and examples so that you can customize it for your business. Very interesting. Go ahead, Dawn. And I was just going to ask Andrea, um, for you now that you're building your business, like what's your vision uh, building it forward for like, let's say the next couple 
years? Like, what do you, when, when it's all said and done, uh, what do you want to look back on and what do you want to see how your business has over, has grown over the years? Yeah. So my goal is to be the go-to firm in Canada for women entrepreneurs. I want that any woman that's looking to start a business, that one of the stops on the way to her business is Henry Business Law. And for me, the satisfaction is seeing when people are starting out, and especially if you haven't been in business before, sometimes the value of working with a lawyer is not evident. It's really clear that you should work with a marketer because marketers get you clients. You need mm-hmm. clients, right? It's not always clear the value of working with a marketer, with a with a lawyer. And so for me, the satisfaction comes, especially with my clients who are working with me over time, and I can see where they start. And you can see with the, the foundations that we've put into place, when they start being able to take advantage of bigger and bigger opportunities, when they're getting ready for investment. I had a client who just closed their first um, venture capital round of investment, and we had all kinds wow. of celebrations. It's the satisfaction of seeing all of these businesses that are doing well and are thriving and are you know, positively impacting our society mm-hmm. because of something that I contributed to. So it's the impact that I want to be able to see. White women. Um, I mean, it might be obvious, but I would love to know, is it, is it just because you're a woman or is it like, all right, I see that there's a specific need here that I'm trying to meet. I would love to like get like the, the mental switch for it to, to go directly. It's both. Women. It's both. So yeah, I'm a woman. And so maybe I see things through a, a particular lens. Yeah. Women especially women of color, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. Yes, they are. And I genuinely feel like I'm evangelical about the fact that I think that successful businesses are the way for women to be able to manage family and fulfill in their dreams. Because you have no boss. You're the person who says when you're going to work, how you're going to work. It's what's allowed me to be the mom that I want to be and also follow my passions and my dreams. And so for me, it's really rewarding to work with women. And I work with guys too. I work with guys who are supportive of women in business. Um, but personally, it's just, it's, it's rewarding to me to see that because guys tend to be a little bit more confident in business and there are a lot of resources okay. available and there are a lot of spaces where guys feel comfortable. Less so for women, or at least in the past. It's changing now. And so it's important to me to be that resource where People can be themselves where they don't feel that they need to put on a suit and be stuffy, that they can talk about their business that's unusual. I have clients who do, you know, who are doulas, right? Who've created huge businesses around providing doulas, who if they walked into Bay Street and tried to explain what it is that they do, they feel that they wouldn't be taken seriously. And so it's important to me to be able to provide that resource, you know, I serve everyone, anyone who's interested in, in, in growing a business and making sure that they do it in a protected way. But my, my particular passion is working with women in business. Sounds good. So have you had to pivot your business um, because of COVID? Like how has that impacted you? Yeah. So I provide most of my services virtually. So oh, that wow. wasn't a change. And so okay. clients were accustomed to dealing with me virtually. Where I have changed a little bit is in providing a probably more resources that are that are no cost because mm. I think it's important. I saw um, one of my friends and clients that I follow on Instagram said, in COVID, you either have to be a source of a resource or a source of relief. So she's been providing really funny IG videos. Who's this? Um, <laughs> you have to give them a shout out. 
<laughs> this is Vivian K. Ah, uh, Vivian K. Kinky Kiriaki. <laughs> Shout right. out to her. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. So if you follow Vivian on IG, you know that she has the best IG stories around. If you don't, go follow her. Um, yeah, so trying to be more of a resource, making sure that people have the information they need without necessarily needing to pay for it at a time where everyone is concerned. Mm-hmm. I've been reaching out to clients, just making sure they know that I'm here if they have any questions, um, working with people around payment plans if there are things that need to be done. So I think it hasn't been a drastic change because I've always been about how can I best serve my client. And one of the things that I've done is, you know, in the past, you have usually to set up legal foundation that you have to do your incorporation and trademark and contracts and all that, it can get expensive, right? Mm-hmm. I've provided programs where you pay for that over time. It's a flat fee. So you're not worried about billable hours. You're not worried about every time you pick up the phone that the meter is ticking. It's a flat fee that you can pay in installments. So it's predictable. It becomes a line item in your budget for the next six months of the next year. And so just more of that and making sure people are aware of the various options of working with me. There are clients who run salons who have just basically said, you've been a really good client. I'm going to take care of you this month. Don't worry about it. Because I know that they have no income coming in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I was in that situation, I would want somebody to do it for me. And I want them to get back on their feet. (laughs) I want them to continue thriving. I want to continue being able to... Um, to provide service to them. I think that's been the biggest, the biggest shift. Mm-hmm. What are some uh, free resources uh, or tools that you have uh, on your website that people can take advantage of right now? Perhaps they have an online business, they're starting a coaching yeah. program. Uh, what are some of those tools that you can share that people can go to your website and take advantage of? Sure. So I have a secure startup checklist. Um, which is a general checklist and is all of the legal aspects of starting a business. So it covers what we've discussed in terms of how do you own your business? Do you want a sole proprietorship or a corporation? What type of corporation? It talks about taxes, questions about HST. How do you decide to do a trademark? If you need a trademark, what's the difference between trademark and copyright? That's all in the general, in the secure startup checklist. Um, there are specific ones for beauty entrepreneurs which is also an area kind of near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's a specific one for video entrepreneurs and then there's a more general one. There's the anatomy of a contract, which is, I was alluding to earlier in terms of the breakdown of how you can analyze any contract that's provided to you so that you understand what you're doing before you sign on the dotted line. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And then on my website, I've got various other podcasts. I've done other speaking engagements where I'm speaking about the law pretty much talk about the same thing, right? The, the three pillars are how you own your business, how do you protect your brand, and the importance of, of governing the relationships in your business with solid contracts. Um, so wherever I've spoken, it's been in some, <laughs> it's been some variation of that. So all of that's on the website as well. That's really big. Could you repeat that one more time? Sure. So the three pillars. Three pillars. How do you own your business? How do you own your business? How do you protect your brand? How do you protect your brand? How do you protect your relationships? How do you protect relationships? Interesting. Solid. Very key. Very key. Mm-hmm. Amazing. All right. As your work wrapping up, um, where can people find you? <laughs> so website, henrybusinesslaw.com. Um, I tend to hang out mostly on, on Instagram at Henry Business Law. Mm-hmm. Um, also on Facebook, Henry Business Law. And I'm on LinkedIn if you want to come and friend me. Amazing. Sounds good. Sounds Amazing. good. Yeah. Any last few words? No, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. 
Um, and I think you guys are doing a great service for young entrepreneurs out there. Thank you. Thank you so that. much. Yeah. yeah. Any questions for us? You know, yeah, so... questions? <laughs> how, how have people in your community, how do you find people are dealing with COVID? Are you finding kind of the panic or is it that people are saying this is an opportunity? I can pivot. How do you think mm-hmm. the response has been? I think it's a bit of both. I'll go first. So we can go, uh, yeah, yeah. Back. You go um, first. I think it's a bit of both where people are saying, all right, if I don't make something out of this, I'm a failure. Or it's like, I'm seriously impacted by this and now I'm trying to pivot. Right. Um, I feel it's a, definitely a mixture of both. Um, right now, I see a lot of people trying to learn online. Everyone's mm-hmm. looking at different podcasts, different online tutorials, trying to mm-hmm. figure out exactly what pivot I can make now. Trying to look yeah. at stocks. How can I take... Um, best advantage of this time. And also, mm-hmm. other, a lot of people are getting laid off as well. Um, and they're looking for the next opportunity for themselves and to be more creative and to, I guess, expand their horizons in different ways. So it's, it's a, a combination of both. I wish I could say it's a definitive answer, but it's really just um, a mixture of both, I, I find, at least in, in my social media feeds. I don't get to talk too, too much. I've been more social, though. Like a lot of my families have caught me out the blue. You know, yeah. <laughs> just to say what, what's up. I'm like, wow, I was in like ten years, but um, <laughs> but but yeah, uh, I think that's the the case really. It's trying to prepare for when it stops. Mm-hmm. But I think what's affecting people is the fact that there's no stop. We don't know. know. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's the anxiety-inducing part. Is that no one knows when it's gonna end. So it's kind of like, what am I doing? Kind of, it's very anxiety-inducing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I think about it. How about you, Juan? Yeah, I mean, I I'm a, I agree with everything you said. Personally, for me, uh, I have my roommates with me, so we're seeing this as an opportunity to really uh, build and create. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for me, Andrea, I got laid off work because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I sucked about it for a day, but then I sat back and I looked at it. I was like, you know what? This is actually an opportunity to really do the podcast make content, write blogs and till I find my next job. Right. And even though it's looking bleak right now with a lot of businesses not hiring, I still feel like it's a great opportunity because in a way I've always been asking for this type of opportunity uh, where I'm stuck in the house. There's no reason to go outside. There's Mm -hmm. no reason to spend money, but just create. And the power of the internet has just made it so easy for us to do what we do, like to connect with you right now, right? We're learning and we're sharing this information with other people. So we're being of service and people want to learn as they're trapped inside their house. And we're just giving them that avenue. But of course there is worry. We don't know when it's going to end, but as long as you're healthy, I think it's a, it's a blessing to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's interesting that you're saying in terms of the, so um, you guys obviously know about Arlene Dickinson. She's on, on Dragon's Den Mm -hmm. and, um, I've followed Arlene for some time and and one of the things she talks about, so she was, I think in her early twenties, four kids divorced, you know, high school diploma and nothing else. And sort of cried on her dad's um, sofa for a while. The dad said, you need to get up and try to find a job. She got three different jobs and got fired from all of them within like a couple of days. He's like, okay, (laughs) being an employee is not for you. Maybe try a business. And, And one of her fire shy chats, and this has always helped me, even when business, you know, business has its ups and downs. And sometimes mm-hmm. you think you're doing like best and you are wonderful and you're hitting out of the part. And then like the next day, you're like, oh my mm-hmm. goodness, this whole thing is going to fall apart. 
But sometimes not having an alternative is the best thing. And I find when you kind of jump, sometimes you get pushed, right? But when you're when you kind of have no choice but for what you're doing to work out, you work at it more, you tend to take it more seriously. And a lot of um, really successful entrepreneurs are people who have done that, whether it's being pushed because someone saved them off or they've just taken the leap. But it's when you have to create that safety net for yourself that you start to become really creative. Mm-hmm. Right? Like when I, when I quit and when I decided to start the firm, I had three young kids that I needed to support. So I had to figure out a way to get it done. Had I stayed at the job and kind of dabbled, I doubt that it would have been able to move as quickly. I wouldn't have had the mental space. I wouldn't have had the energy and I wouldn't have had the same drive because the alternative to me making it was homelessness, mm-hmm. literally. Right? So sometimes those things are blessings in disguise. It might not think, seem that way right now, but um, sometimes not having the alternative and not having the other stuff to fall back on really makes you very creative and solution oriented. Yeah. And, and I'm also feeling that right now. I feel like every morning I wake up, hustle over everything is the only thing I think about. And it's such a great feeling. I'm so excited waking up and uh, talking to Alex about, hey, I think we should do this uh, and dreaming about things we we want to dream about of creating. So I'm very happy and it, it's yeah. a blessing for me because I know it's four months, but in this four months, you know, we can do a lot of damage and we can create a lot of things that can we can we don't know what's coming, but I feel yeah. like something's gonna come, which is gonna like push up, push us up, and we're like, okay, we're actually a real, real company. We're doing this, this, and mm-hmm. that. And then the thing with momentum, it just takes over, and That's you right. just go, 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 and go. That's but right, right now, we're just pushing, pushing, pushing until the ball just yeah continues flowing. That's and it, flowing. and it starts to snowball. And it, it snowballs, snowball, yeah. and it'll take over you, right? Most definitely. Right. Well, it was wonderful chatting with you guys. Thank you so much. Yes, definitely. So uh, housekeeping items, you know, make sure to follow us on our Instagram at 247hustler. Our email is on our website, everything, hustleofeverything.co, excuse me. Uh, My personal Instagram is elevatedalexander. Owens is at owen.osinde. Make sure to follow us and our proud to pay um, link is in our description of the podcast. Um, all of um, the links we talked about in the podcast will be in the description as well. We can talk off, offline, uh, Angie, about organizing all those links. You know, send mm-hmm. them over to me. And um, yeah, I hope you guys have a great day, great life. Um, stay hustling. Owen. You already speech. know what time it is, man. You already know what time so, it is, Al. So Hustler Nation, listen up. You know, we just had Andrea Henry on the podcast talking about business and the things you need to know to really protect your grind and to really flourish during these times. So just listen to this podcast and take notes because there are a lot of gems dropped into this. And whenever you're building your business, just make sure you're protected. Make sure you have all the structures in place, all the different legal documents that you really need to really build your business the way you envisioned it when you first dreamt about it. You don't want to be caught up at the end where your partner is leaving you and he's left to another country, he or she's left to another country, and you're left paying an insane amount of money to the government. You don't want that. So take the time today to really strap up with everything that you need to have to really make your business the way you want it to do, to be. And with our, our girls listeners, you know, Andrea Henry is here to really help you 
if you have any questions or you need any advice, she is there. We're going to put her Instagram in the link at the bottom of the podcast. So you can click on it and just hit her up with anything that you want to really learn about. And also the free resources that we have are going to be on our website as well when we write about the post and also in the IG uh, section as well. So um, Andrea Henry, thank you so much for being here with us today and just giving us all these uh, gems and all the information to really uh, flourish during these times and to really make our businesses protected uh, the best way that we can protect them. You're most welcome. It was my pleasure. Yes. Hustle over everything. All right. Hustle over everything. I'm Oino Sinde. I'm Alexander. And we'll talk to you soon. Peace.